The following sermon is brought to you by New Covenant Community Church, a Bible-based church located on Route 62 east of Johnstown, Ohio. To learn about New Covenant Community Church, visit www.new-covenant.org. Again, that is new-covenant.org. Now, enjoy the message. God bless you all for being in God's house today. I hope and pray and believe that you will be blessed by being in God's house with God's people. I want to welcome all of you here and those visiting and those joining us online and all the rest. And uh, you can be turning your Bibles to the book of Acts, the first chapter, the Acts of the Apostles, the book of Acts, the first chapter. It is so good to be here. I've had just a whirlwind of a schedule, but it is, it's good to be here. It's good to have God's Word open. It's good to know that God loves us. And uh, I love most of you so very much. So, <clears throat> Nervous laughter, nervous laughter. The book of Acts. You can be turning your Bibles there. And as you are, uh, you can be taking either hard copy Bible or your phone or tablet or whatever it is that you have. But you ought to have God's Word in front of you. And once you have turned there, let's join together and pray. Jesus, we have gathered as your flock to be fed of our master. Father, we are thankful this morning that you have given us your word, that it might show us so much. Lord, everything that we need for life and godliness has been given to us in the means of your word. So, Father, make us a people of it. Let us boldly proclaim the truth that is found in it. And let us live our lives through it, we pray. God, help me in this time as I seek to rightly divide your word with truth. We love you, Lord. We could just, we could sit here all day and share stories of your goodness and grace. And Father, it would be enough for us just to go around the room and share testimonies of your goodness. And you've been good to your flock. You've been good to me even in the midst of my trouble and my pain. and You're good even in those moments. So Father, remind us of that truth when we do go through difficulties, that you have not left us, that you have not forsaken us, and that you have graciously, by your sovereignty, given us your word to guide your bride, the church. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. And all the church says... If you and I were to sit down and write a Bible commentary that was to describe the entirety of redemptive history, uh, they would be full chapters, but we could summarize it in essentially four chapters. If you and I were to sit down and write this commentary, we could say that we would put most of what's in the Old Testament into chapter 1. We would put in chapter 1 the creation. 
We'd put in chapter 1 the fall of mankind and the nature of God and the first messianic prophecy that God gave in the garden right when Adam and Eve fell that there would be one that would come, the Messiah who would crush the head of the enemy. We would, we would put all of those things in chapter 1. We would know much of his character and nature throughout all of those Old Testament pieces that we understand that reveal to us God's nature. We would put all those things into chapter 1. And perhaps in chapter 2 we would put much of what's in the New Testament, the coming of the Messiah, the ministry that he had, how he was powerful over sin and death and how he called Lazarus out of the grave. And We would put all those kinds of things in, and perhaps we would even put the ascension of Jesus and the future plan that's revealed to us in the book of Revelation. We could put all those things into chapter 2 and, and maybe just perhaps in chapter 3 we would we would describe some of the things of the church, how the church started, how it functions, the trials that the church has gone through and will go through. And perhaps in chapter 4, we would go in more detail of the age to come, the return of Jesus Christ, the great tribulation, the millennial reign, the new heaven and the new earth that Jesus will bring about by his power. And what I hope that you have a keen awareness of this morning, church, is that if you and I were to write such a volume in four separate chapters in that kind of way, I hope you have a keen awareness that we are somewhere in the middle of chapter 3, that we are in the middle of this story, that we're not just left out here to dry as if God just left us and left us alone. No, we are in the middle of something huge, something glorious. Last week we discussed in the very beginning of the book of Acts, the first part of that first chapter, how the physician Luke describes to this friend of his named Theophilus that, that this thing that is, that is called Christianity, this thing called following Christ, there's something glorious about it. That there's this overarching authority that God is that people lovingly and willfully submit themselves to because God has loved us in that kind of way. Luke talked about this great plan that God has. Those were the things that, that Luke described to his friend Theophilus. And this week, we're going to see more about this chapter 3 of the fictitious book that I mentioned a moment ago. More about this church age in which we find ourselves that we are currently traversing through. If you and I were to sit down and read a chapter book and you didn't pay much attention to the first part of the chapter, how many of you know that when you get to the latter part of that chapter that sometimes it's really fuzzy because you didn't have a good, keen understanding of the beginning of the chapter? Raise your hand if you're a reader and you know what I'm talking about. It's important that you have a keen understanding of the beginning of the chapter so that you see clearly all the things that will happen in the latter part of the chapter. So for that purpose, we are in this series that will take us through the entirety of the book of Acts of understanding our roots, understanding the beginning of this age called the church age in which we find ourselves. We're going to see what it is that God intended for us as the church so that we have a keen understanding of the beginning of the chapter and so that we know well what to expect coming in to this next part of the chapter of the church age in which we are living right now. If you're with me, say amen. And look to verse 12 of Acts chapter 1 if you would please. And this is simply recording the events after Jesus' ascension. Verse 12, we read and it says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. 
Now, just in case you're wondering, a Sabbath day journey, as best I can remember from seminary, was about 3,000 feet. It was about roughly a half of a mile, and this was simply the length at which was acceptable for people in the Jewish tradition to journey on a Sabbath day. Verse 13, and when they had entered Jerusalem, excuse me, and when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication, with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Now as God's word continues to set the stage for us of the beginning of this chapter in which of, of the redemptive history in which we find ourselves this church age, there are two things that I think are interesting about this text, and one of which would be that this is the first time that Judas Iscariot listed in a whole list of disciples when he is not mentioned. Judas Iscariot used to be listed among the disciples, but we know now that he's obviously dead. He had betrayed Christ. He goes out and hangs himself, which Peter will mention in a little more in a little moment. But Judas is not mentioned. The other thing that's interesting about this piece thus far is that Mary, the mother of Jesus, is mentioned. And the way in which it mentions her is very intriguing. And you'll see more why we're elevating this piece in just a moment. But you'll notice that Mary is mentioned along with all the other disciples. The apostles, that there are 11 of now, the original disciples the brothers of Jesus, other women that were there, and Mary is simply mentioned in the mix. Mary is being obedient to what Jesus says to go back to Jerusalem and wait and pray for the coming of the Holy Spirit. She's simply there among the rest of them. She is being obedient to what it was that her Redeemer and that her Savior had instructed her as a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ to do. Uh, Mary is not worshipped. Mary is not elevated. She is simply going along with the rest of the disciples being obedient. And this is consistent with her nature. In Luke 1, verse 46, after she's here, she's now pregnant with Jesus and she goes to visit her relative, Elizabeth, who is pregnant with John the Baptist. And that part of Scripture that describes to us the song that she sings and when, when Elizabeth tells Mary that, why did the mother of my Lord come to visit me? The babe had leapt in Elizabeth's womb because of this Messiah that, that Mary was pregnant with. And, and Mary says something so inter interesting there in the beginning of that section of text. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. So take note of how she traversed in for our Catholic friends that, that do participate in worship of Mary you can lovingly guide them to the scriptures and show them that Mary was simply an obedient disciple like the rest of them were verse 15 if you would please and in those days Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples altogether the number of names was about 120 and said men and brethren this scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke before them by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, 
and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out. And it became known to all dwelling in Jerusalem, so that the field is called in their own language a keldama, that is, field of blood. So it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate, and let no one live in it, and let another take his office. So again, two things that are interesting to note thus far in this particular text is that Peter fills out the rest of the story of what happened to Judas. We know that Judas betrayed Jesus. We know that he did it for some money, of which he then felt guilty of, and he throws the money down on the floor of the temple. And we know that they obviously, that it says here that Judas bought the field, but we understand that it was Judas through the means of the Pharisees that were in the temple. They went and bought this field in which to bury strangers. And it's kind of interesting that he, that is also the same field in which Judas goes to try and hang himself. And it sounds to me with what Peter's describing here that there was almost some kind of failed suicide attempt in the way because it tells us in the Gospels that he goes out to hang himself which it sounds as though that was his intention, but it sounds as though he fall, fell somehow. Whether the knot slipped or the branch broke or it slipped off of his head, we don't understand exactly, but we do know that he falls to the ground and that bursting open, his entrails gushed out. What a picture that is. What we also note about this scripture is that there has been a massive, massive shift in Peter. And here's what I mean by that. Take your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 16. And I'll give you a moment to get there on your phone, tablet, hard copy Bible, to Matthew 16, verse 21. And I want you to take note as we read this next portion of text, the, the attitude in which Peter, how his attitude relates to that of things that Jesus says, this is my word and these things must come to pass. Listen to what he says there in verse 21 of Matthew 16. It says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of man. So you take Peter in Matthew chapter 16, and Jesus says to them, These are the things that must transpire. I must go to Jerusalem. I must suffer these things by the elders and the chief priests. These things must come to pass. And then you get Peter pulling Jesus aside and says, this is not going to happen to you. I won't let this happen. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You don't even understand what you're saying. You are not being spiritually mindful. You are speaking of the things of man. These things must come to pass. Do not say that you're going to get in the way of the things that must come to pass in God's plan. So you take Peter's attitude from a Matthew 16 perspective and then you fast forward to Acts chapter 1, the text that we just read, and here Peter is standing up in the midst of the disciples saying, this must come to pass, that this one named Judas would betray Jesus. And it tells us, in this, in, and he even pulls from Psalm 69 and Psalm 106. He references these things that were spoken by the mouth of David. These very in there, in the weeds kind of text out of Scripture saying, another must take his place. 
And let the place where his dwelling be is to be desolate. Peter all of a sudden has this great awareness of the things that must come to pass. He even says it there in the beginning portions that we read that this must come to pass. So what was it that happened to Peter from going from one attitude of not connecting the dots in any way whatsoever, even telling Jesus that what Jesus says must come to pass and saying it won't happen, to all of a sudden he's standing up and has this keen awareness that God will allow certain things to come to pass and even must come to pass. It's been speculated on for years as to why Peter had this change, but I believe it's very easy to figure out. Because when you think what happened between Matthew 16 and Acts chapter 1, we know that there were some interactions that Peter had with Jesus, one of which being in John 21, when Peter had gone back to fishing and Jesus meets Peter there on the beach and, and he cooks him breakfast. And what a sweet picture of reconciling Peter back into the ministry. And Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yes, I love you. And Jesus asks him that three times. They, they have breakfast together on the beach and and there was, there was something that transpired there, but it wasn't only that. If you remember back to last week in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, the doctor Luke tells us that Jesus presented himself alive after his sufferings by many infallible proofs being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So in that 40-day period from the time that Jesus went through the burial, the resurrection, he spent 40 days until his ascension and he did some things like speak of the kingdom of God. He very likely spoke with Peter about connecting these dots, that there are things that must come to pass. And I believe that this is why we see this huge change in Peter in this way. So if we were to just take a brief survey of the, men, of the disciples that we've mentioned thus far, we have Mary, who seemingly from the very beginning, even from the angel Gabriel describing to her that she is going to bear a son, he will be Emmanuel, he, be, will, be, he will be God with us, you'll call his name Jesus. She, she accepted God's word from the very get-go. You have Peter, who was kind of a dunce in the beginning, but then he got on track and Jesus instructed him in these things and he connected the dots. And you have Mary and Peter in this kind of place of, of understanding God's word. And then you have Judas who is literally a heap of guts at this point. What's the point here? The point, and number one this morning, is that the way to be spiritually discerning is to be biblically devoted. The way to be spiritually discerning is to be biblically devoted. If you and I are to be believers in this day and age in which we find ourselves, the age of the church, marching forward in time, and we are to have an awareness that certain things must take place, that we're not panicked all over the place, we need to remind ourselves that we ought to have kind of a mimicking of Mary and Peter in this example here of being minded of the things that God has said being minded of the things that he has said such that there will be things that must come to pass. Mary didn't under, understand all the things that God was going to do, but she believed and trusted him. Peter, once Jesus had an opportunity to teach him all these things, and Peter was listening and he was able to connect the dots, he was then not humanly minded but spiritually minded he then could stand up and understand that some of these things must take place he was able to connect the dots between the old testament and the new testament and the things that was were unfolding before their very eyes and it ought to be the same for us as well the precedent that god has set forth for you and i is to be a people of his word 
to be a people that are believing in it, trusting in it, reading it, understanding it, digesting it, so that we may be spiritually minded going forward and understand the things that must come to pass. If you're still with me, say yes. These are our roots, church. This was God's intention for the church, that we be a biblical people, that we be a people mindful of his word, a biblically devoted kind of people. It's very difficult for a tree with deep roots to be blown over in a storm. And I believe with the potential spiritual storms in which we find ourselves marching towards that there will be many trees that you see topple over because they had no roots. We must be rooted in God's word. Brothers and sisters this morning, be very careful. Be very careful of people who pose as spiritual but perhaps don't have very deep roots be very careful of people with spiritual one-liners be very careful of people when they say things like god is the god of second chances which is true but that's not completely true it needs much more to describe even barely scratching the surface of the nature of almighty god be careful of the person who spits out the spiritual one-liners like god loves all his children which yes is true but not everyone is his child we are created by him but but not everyone is redeemed of his blood there it needs to have this description in it be careful of the person that says, judge not lest you be judged. Paul Washer one time, if you know who Paul Washer is, a, from what I understand, a faithful gospel preacher, he had someone say that to him. He said, they, someone said to him, judge not lest you be judged. And he looked right at him and said, twist not scripture lest you be like Satan. I was just... <laughs> be careful of the person, dear friends, who poses being spiritual, but they have drunkenness going on in their home. Be careful of that person. They likely don't have very deep roots. They perhaps at a time knew some things of God's word, but just enough to get themselves to say certain things that are half-truths that will lead people down a very dangerous path. The design that God has and still had and still has today for the church is for us to be a biblical people, to be digesting it, to be understanding it, to be aware of the things, to have a good understanding of the beginning of the chapter of the church age, that you and I might march forward in today's world and have a good vision for what is happening around us today imagine this with me for a moment imagine that there was a basketball going game going on and neither team nor the coaches of either team understand any of the rules or any of the objective of the game whatsoever that would be kind of a hilarious game to watch you would have some people sitting on the ball you would have some people kicking the ball you would have some people don't even understand what the hoops are for. They were just, it would be complete and utter chaos, no purpose, no organization, no mission, no objective. It would be foolish to watch something like that. And, and what we see, hear what I'm saying this morning, church, that what we see in our world today is a huge number of believers, people that say they are believers, that are in the same way lost because they do not have roots in the Word of God. What I told folks on Wednesday night, one of the many things that I talked about this past Wednesday when I was preaching about the vision of our church and, and all the things that we discussed on Wednesday night was 
Um, you'll see people doing all kinds of crazy things. And one of the crazy things that I've heard about lately is this practice called grave soaking. And most of you probably don't know what that is. I didn't know what it was until a few weeks ago, but it's this practice where people who say they're believers will figure out where some important Christian person was buried. Like, I don't know, say, just think of some important Christian, Billy Graham perhaps, or, or say, Say, say one of the early church fathers, they figure out where some of those people are buried and then they go and lay on the grave thinking that they'll like be able to soak up some of it, what's on them, the anointing that God gave them that they'll be able to like soak up. What a dumb waste of time. Like there's just, it's just so stupid to think that because, and the reason we see those kinds of things is because there's, because people are not rooted in God's word in the way that they are to be rooted it will cause them to do all kinds of things because they don't understand the objective they don't understand the purpose they don't understand how they are to walk as believers in this world today you'll see believers doing the similar kinds of things of basketball players not understanding the objective whatsoever you'll see them doing things like saying that evolution and christianity are compatible are compatible dear friends this morning read your bibles someone say amen Read your Bibles. Those two things are not compatible in any way, shape, or form. You'll see and hear people talking about Joel Osteen and Andy Stanley as if they're great Bible teachers. Dear brothers and sisters this morning, read your Bibles. It makes some people mad when I say things like you shouldn't listen to Joel Osteen as a gospel preacher. And the reason I say that is because he's not a gospel preacher. We need to be rooted in God's word to see that if you're not rooted in God's word, you won't see that Joel Osteen is a false prophet. He's a fake teacher. He's a, he's a motivational speaker at best, but he does it under the guise of Christianity, which is horrible. It is absolutely awful to see what that man is doing along with Andy Stanley. He's a motivational speaker. He's not a gospel preacher. I'm not convinced that those guys are even believers. And if you don't know God's word, you won't see that. If you don't know God's word, that will offend you. We must be rooted in God's word. It is the design that God had and still has today for his church. What we are experiencing today, dear friends, is the exact same thing that the scriptures describe to us in 2 Chronicles chapter 34 where it tells us about this young king named Josiah and that there was complete lawlessness in the land of Israel. And the reason there was complete lawlessness is because they had lost the law. They had literally lost the scroll in the temple for crying out loud. They had actually lost the scrolls that described the Old Testament, Mosaic law, all the things that they were supposed to be abiding by. They had lost it. There was lawlessness in the land and it was lost inside the temple. They had forgotten. They had literally misplaced where it was. And as a result, there was lawlessness in the land. We are seeing the exact same thing happening today where even in the pulpit, the word of God is lost. We're seeing the same thing in some of your homes today because some of you have homes where you have Bibles there, but your home is not rooted in the word of God. Your life is not rooted in the word of God. You go about lost and confused about many things because you do not have roots, deep relying on roots in the word of God. I am not here today, friends, let me just be clear with you, I'm not here to make this a religious experience for us. 
I'm not here so that we can feel good about ourselves on Sunday and go home and pat ourselves on the back and, and just feel like we can go on until next Sunday. I'm here to remind us that we are to be a biblical people, and some of you are not. We are to be a people as a church. The design for the church, it was and is for us to have roots in the Word of God. If you believe it, say yes. I hope I was not unclear. I love you, church, but I, I love what God has done. I, I see the, the model that he's given us. God speaking through his word saying, roots, deep roots of understanding in the word of God, it must be there. And for many, it is not. Let the Holy Spirit convict as he will this morning, I pray. So look now, if you would, to verse 21, where Peter continues on talking about this office of apostleship that Judas obviously is no longer in. Verse 21. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time, that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they proposed two. Joseph called Barsabbas, whose surname is Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show us which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas, by transgression, fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast lots, and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So paint this picture in your mind, church, this morning. 120 disciples there. Jesus has ascended. He's given them clear instructions to go to Jerusalem and wait the coming of the Holy Spirit. They're all there together, 120 of them in this upper room. They're praying together. They're in one accord. Mary is there praying the way it says that Peter stood up among from them. It almost sounds to me like many of them were kneeling, Mary of which would have been one of them. They're praying, they're in one accord, and Peter stands up, and of course I'm summarizing, but he basically stands up and says, Judas, by transgression, fell. And now in that same field of the money that he threw down in the temple, and those Pharisees and whatnot, they went and bought this field to bury strangers in, Judas went out, he goes out to hang himself, and now he's a rotting pile of guts in that field. And now we're going to appoint another apostle. We're going to pray and see that there is another added to us to restore this number of 12 that God would have as apostles prior to the coming of the Holy Spirit. They pray. There was two men suggested, this justice character and this Matthias character who ultimately becomes the next apostle. And then he is decided upon to be the next apostle when they cast lots. And I just wonder what the rest of the 120 believers are thinking to themselves. Peter stands up and seemingly a very quick moment to say, Judas fell, he's a, rot, a pile of rotting guts, we're going to get another apostle, here we go. And then all of a sudden, boom, it's restored back to 12 apostles again, 12 disciples. It just makes me wonder what they thought to themselves. Judas was supposed to be the thing. Judas was the weapon that the devil had created to be the, the frontal attack on the gospel. He was the one that betrayed Jesus. I would have loved to have known what the devil was thinking. He was probably thinking to himself, we've got him now. 
We, we're, going to, we're going to stop Jesus from this mission we've got. We've, we've filled Judas with this evil, wicked plan. We're going to get him to betray Jesus. We're going to get him to lead the Sanhedrin against him and all these things. And you fast forward just a little bit and he's a pile of rotting guts in a field. And then there's another apostle there. And then things are back on track. I just think that maybe perhaps the disciples thought to themselves, this God that we serve cannot be stopped. I think that just perhaps they thought the same things that the Egyptians were thinking after the Red Sea crossing when God, by his power, allowed his people to go through and in pursuit was the Egyptian army and God closed the Red Sea over them. I think that just perhaps the rest of Egypt was thinking to themselves, this God cannot be stopped. I think that just perhaps those disciples, those 120 disciples in that upper room when they so quickly went from this plan that the devil had to going right past it, God moving on with his mission, they were probably thinking the same things that the people inside the wall of Jericho were thinking. When they were going around and all of a sudden all that story of the Jericho and the Israelites are going around and on the last day they went around all those times and they all started shouting and the wall starts falling down. They probably thought to themselves that this God cannot be stopped when Jesus raised Lazarus Lazarus from the dead and says Lazarus come out of that grave the people around I have to imagine thought to themselves that this Jesus cannot be stopped when Jesus met those ladies on the road after his resurrection they saw him just three days prior they watched him be murdered They watched him die on a cross. They watched him bleed. They watched him carry that cross. They watched all of that. And now they meet him, the man, alive on the road. They probably thought to themselves, this God cannot be stopped. The world has thought that as it has seen the church prevail and continue to prevail. And when Jesus returns someday, the thought of you and I, as well as all the other unbelievers in the world, we will see with joy in our we will say with joy in our voices and they will say with fear in theirs that this god cannot be stopped so our second point this morning god's plan is not thwarted by evil and wrongdoing god's plan is not thwarted by evil and wrongdoing so fear not church when things happen that are difficult both for the church as a whole and in your life individually. These things must come to pass. We are to be a spiritual, in God's word, rooted people to see these things. Someone told me just this morning before I came up here to preach that there's all this talk about getting churches to not have their tax-exempt status anymore. To be quite honest with you, I'm kind of surprised that we still do. I'm surprised that's not something that's been taken away years ago. But, but because I at least have some kind of root in God's Word, I understand that God's Word foretold that perilous days would come. It's, that's supposed to come. There are certain things that will come to pass as God's plan unfolds. And no plan of evil, no wrongdoing is going to thwart God in that plan. He will even use those wrongdoings. Even Judas in his betrayal, Peter says, it was foretold that God was going to use that for this purpose. It was foretold by the mouth of David in the book of Psalms, two different chapters that Peter quotes in that moment as he stands up among the 120 disciples. God's plan is not thwarted by evil and wrongdoing. If you believe it, say amen. It was June of 1775 when George Washington was placed over 
the Revolutionary War, the Re- Revolutionary Army that was the Americans pushing back against, against the British soldiers. And it has largely been eradicated out of the new kind of history that is taught. But as, as I read the books that I read when I was in school of the history of it, there were certain reasons for why the Americans were pushing back. The news story today is told as it was simply for taxation purposes, and there were elements of that. But the history books I read, the ones that I think were probably less messed with, less altered for a certain kind of agenda, they described, and they described to me clearly, that the chief reason, the chief and overarching reasons that the Americans were pushing back that even caused them to sail that far to get to a new land is because they didn't want to bow down and worship a king. They wanted to worship Jesus. They wanted to have the church, not as the Catholic church was overreaching in that moment. And that was the predominant reason in which they were pushing back. That was what George Washington was leading this army of Americans against. And there were stirrings among the American soldiers, among these American militiamen. They weren't soldiers. They were farmers. They were fishermen. They were blacksmiths. They were leather workers. They were copper workers. They they were just ordinary people that were going against this wicked foe. And there were stirrings among them that said, there's no way we can beat them because they have so many more weapons than we do, which is true. There were stirrings among them that said, there's no way we can beat them because their training is so much more advanced than that of our own, which is also true. There were these thoughts among them that there was no way in which they were going to be able to beat them, but it was very interesting to me to note that the very thing that they were fearful of was the very thing that worked in their advantage. You see, the British army was very, very prideful. They too knew that they had more weapons. They also knew that they had more training and that they significantly outnumbered the enemy in which they were going against, the American soldiers that were in this effort, in this movement, for the predominant reasons of not bowing down to a king. And because of that pride, because of that arrogance, the British in many respects became lax. They became relaxed in this battle, in this fight, because they thought it would be a cakewalk. They thought it would be no problem. And this evil that came against the Americans who for the overarching reasons were doing what they were doing to not have to bow down to a king... They were defeated ultimately, as we all know, because of, the, because of this pride that had overtaken them. And it gave, through those means, through those wicked means, it gave the Americans the upper hand, allowing them to worship and to worship freely many of those freedoms we are still enjoying to this very day. God's plan is not thwarted by evil and wrongdoing. Even Judas in his wickedness, God, it was said that it must have come to pass. There will be things, wicked things that come against us as believers in this church. There will be things, wicked things that come against you in your life as a believer. Those things must come to pass. Fear not, dear child of God. God's plans cannot be thwarted by evil and wrongdoing. If you're with me, say amen. So there are some things that are cooking up here, if you will, in this first chapter of the book of Acts. This physician named Luke, who we attribute this as being the pen through which God wrote the book of Acts, he is a doctor and he is convinced of the glorious nature of this God. He is convinced of the authority under which God resides as king over all, none other to be worthy to be worshipped other than him alone. He is convinced of that. He's convinced of this plan that, God's ha- that God has for the church. 
The church is launched as being a biblical people. This is God's plan and will for his people to be a rooted in his word believers together. We see that evil cannot stop God's plan. Went right past this specifically designed frontal attack on the gospel. God moves right past the devil's plans. Brings in Matthias. There's 120 believers in the upper room. There's 12 disciples together restored to the full number. And next week we'll be talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit and the launch of the church. Amen? Would you stand with me as we bow our heads and close our eyes to pray? Father, we love your word. You are gracious and kind to give it to us that we may not just be physically minded, humanly minded. Father, forgive us where we have neglected your word. Make us a people rooted on the foundation of your word that you have given us, Lord. Lord, if there's some of us in the room today that need to have a transformation like Peter did, to go from questioning you to saying that what you're saying is wrong, to being a hypocrite posing as this spiritual purpose, yet there's this blatant sin that goes unchecked and unchallenged in our homes. Father, take us through the same transformation in those 40 days like you did for Peter. To then bring him to this place to speak to us. Speak to our hearts, Lord, of the kingdom of God. Let us see through your word these things of your kingdom. Speak to us through your word those same things that you showed to Peter. In those 40 days, that in 40 days from now, we might become like Peter and be spiritually minded. Understanding and understanding with full conviction that there will be some things that must come to pass. And to know that your perfect plan, that it cannot be thwarted. Jesus, thank you for being powerful over sin and death. Thank you that this plan of the devil called this man named Judas to be the one to betray you. Jesus, you are powerful over it and I'm thankful today for it, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that you're powerful over those things. Thank you that you, even this very moment, this very day, offer to those who don't know you the offer of salvation, saying, come and experience my burden, which is light, my yoke, which is easy. Father, convict the hearts of those that do not know you to know that they must repent of their sin and to trust the Savior that their names might be written in the Lamb's book of life, that they might be redeemed and recipients of this great victory over sin and death that only you have won. We love you for it, Jesus. And it's in his mighty name that all the church prays. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing and worship together. These altars are open as always.